0: I've been asked to cover Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16 through verse 32, I'm sorry, 34, which is the end of the chapter. Title this morning's message is Gospel Fluency. Gospel Fluency, and I'll I'll define that term in a few minutes, but let's go ahead and jump into the text beginning in verse 16. Now, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. By a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. And among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Would you join me? And let's go to God and pray. Lord, there is nothing routine about being in the middle of the book of Acts and arriving here this morning together as a people, opening up your word and needing you, and needing to hear from you, and desiring and longing to to, to taste fresh manna this morning from your word. So we pray that you would speak to us. Speak now, O God, on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. Our title this morning, Gospel Fluency, was chosen to express one simple idea that I think emerges from the text. And it's a simple idea that's, that's actually often repeated throughout the New Testament. And I want to I summarize it this way. And that is, when you're taking your message to the world, it helps to know how to translate it. When you're taking your message to the world, it helps to know how to translate it. You know, Pepsi company learned this the hard way. Years ago, they took their slogan, remember, come alive with the Pepsi generation. They, they took their slogan to China, had it translated into Chinese, but it was mistranslated because in Chinese, they translated it, Pepsi brings your relatives back from the dead. <laughs> and that was emblazoned on billboards and people read it and they, began, they panicked and, and Pepsi sales tanked All because no one checked the translation. I mean, Pepsi may kill you, but it's not going to bring your relatives back from the dead. But they weren't fluent, so they sounded foolish. They weren't fluent, so their message was meaningless, which returns us back to the point I was making. When you're taking your message to the world, it helps to know how to translate it. Now, as the unconquered gospel has migrated out throughout the book of Acts, we find we are in a time where Paul has arrived in the city of Athens. And when you hear Athens, just think of this cosmopolitan urban center with with different people, different customs, different languages, all kind of thrown together in the city. And so Paul was in a position where he must once again find a bridge between the good news and a new culture the good news, and a new people. And it's actually here in Acts chapter 17 that we see the scope of Paul's skills in this whole area of gospel translation. And it's here in Acts 17 that we see these certain stages which Paul passes through to arrive at something which I think could be of great help to us, to arrive at what I'm calling here in the title of the message, gospel fluency. So don't let that, that, that idea or that concept, if that sounds complicated, don't let that baffle you because all I mean by that is the ability to translate the gospel, the ability to make the gospel plain for the person that you're trying to reach or in Paul's case, the people that you're trying to reach. I mean, you probably have someone or perhaps a few people in your family, in your neighborhood, at your workplace, that you've been been praying about, you've been trying to reach out to, but you maybe don't always feel like you, you, you understand the pathway to make the gospel plain to them. Well, in Acts chapter 17, we see Paul attempting to do the same thing, and he does it successfully, and he does it by passing through what I'm calling these certain stages. And so there's four of them that I want to give to you. These are, think of them as four stages of gospel fluency, beginning with stage one, gospel perception. Now, what I mean by gospel perception is I mean that that a place where we see and understand fallenness through the gospel. We see and understand fallenness or sinfulness through the gospel. And let me explain or actually, let's look and see how this worked for Paul. Verse 16, it says, Now while Paul was walking, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that it was a city full of idols. So just, just, just imagine what's going on here for a second. Paul was, Paul's in Athens, he's he's waiting for Silas and Timothy, and he's looking around. You know, he's he's checking it out. And what he sees alarms him because what he sees is this landscape filled with idols. The Athenians worshipped hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gods. They worshipped so many gods, they even had an idol to the unknown god just to cover all their bases and to make sure they didn't miss any gods. I mean, I, I was reading through a commentary by John Stott. He said about this verse, he said, this is what Paul saw. A city submerged in idols. Submerged in idols. And verse 16 says that Paul observed this and he was he was provoked. That, that word there, it, it it packs a lot of punch. It means Paul was greatly distressed. It, the word means it's a complicated blend of kind of anger and sorrow. Because all of a sudden. Paul was getting a deeper look into what it represented for a people to have these kinds of idols, this array of idols. He was gaining gospel perception. He was seeing their fallenness through the gospel and beginning to feel what God felt for these people that are far from God. See, to gain gospel perception, perception. Again, gospel perception, seeing and understanding fallenness through the gospel. To gain gospel perception, we've kind of got to follow Paul out of our offices and out of our homes, right into the neighborhood to be out and among the people, which is exactly the way he's presented beginning in verse 16. He is circulating through the city. He is looking at examining a city full of idols. In verse 22, it says, as he, I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship. So he's walking through the city. He is observing. He is looking at the objects of their worship. I mean, just ask yourself this question. Are are, are you in your neighborhood? Are we in our places of work? And are we thinking about people's objects of worship? of those symbols of their fallenness that tell us something about their drive, their heart, the places that their affections are going. See, Paul was in the culture observing, studying, pondering. This was not an academic exercise for Paul. Paul was there to examine people, to understand what they're thinking, to look at the customs He's not doing it through a microscope. This is not a man who's clinically detached from the people that he's seeking to reach. He's not reading about them. He's not Googling them. Paul's not there as a tourist. I mean, it's a great difference between like a like a tourist and, and, and a witness from Scripture. You know, you go to a country as a tourist, and, and tourists, you know, they, they tend to go to the best places, and they see the best sides of the places they go to. I was talking to a buddy not long ago who's worked into Cuba and was working into Cuba, you know, for, for many years, even before it started opening up a little bit more. And he was saying how they would bring the tourists to Cuba in, in Havana and you would only ever see the sides of Havana that would sparkle with life so that there was an impression created, and tourists like that. That's what tourists want to see. They want to see the, the places that are advertised on the websites. They want to see the places where, we, where they will be entertained because tourists are always kind of a step removed. To, to tourists, everyone always kind of looks the same in the other culture because they're not necessarily understanding. that. I, I, I was uh, I was at a conference once. I was speaking, and... Then I had lunch with two men afterwards from Sri Lanka. So we had a great time at lunch. And after lunch, we went to say goodbye. And I just hugged the guy from Sri Lanka. And I said, great to be with you. Thank you so much for, you know, hanging out with me for lunch. And as we kind of pulled apart, he said, wait a minute. He said, you were the guy that preached this morning. And I said, yeah, that's right. I had the privilege of preaching. And he said, huh, you Americans, you all look the same to me. And, you know, I mean, when, I, when he said that, my first thought was, wait, wait a minute, we're American. We're, we say that about everybody else. People don't say that about us. But then the other thing I realized is, you know, that's kind of like if you're just in a country for a few days and you're just kind of not able to, to get with people and study people and you're kind of on a tourist track and and everybody's going to look the same. See, See, Paul was was bringing a gospel perception where he was really trying to get beyond that point where everybody looked the same. Every idol looked the same. And he's beginning to distinguish people, beginning to distinguish what drives people, beginning to understand what it is that makes them tick. When was the last time you pondered what makes the people in your neighborhood tick? When was the last time we really wrestled over the people that we're trying to reach and what's really driving them? Not just just how can I best position myself to just preach the gospel to them, but where do they most need the gospel? See, it's just so easy to come into an environment to think that what's most necessary here is a gospel dump, and yet that's not where Paul starts That's not where he starts in Athens. He's he's walking around. He's checking it out. Everybody doesn't look the same to Paul. So gospel perception helps us to see people and to understand their fallenness through the gospel. That's stage one. Stage two, gospel engagement. Gospel engagement. See, this is where perception moved Paul and, and moves us as well to action. Perception moves us to action. Perception moves us towards engaging. For Paul, it was different groups that were there within Athens. So the passage that we just read lists four different groups of people that Paul engaged while he was with Athens, while he was in Athens. Beginning in verse 17, it says that Paul reasoned in the synagogue and that would, of course, be reasoning with the Jews. And then it goes on to say in the next verse that he was in the marketplace, which meant he was engaging Greeks, and Gentiles, and foreigners, and aliens. And then it goes on in verse 18 to talk about how he met the Epicureans, who followed you know this guy from 270-something BC, Epicurus, who believed there was... No afterlife. You just have to enjoy pleasure in this life and avoid pain. And they were kind of the old school hedonists. I mean, really old, old school hedonists. And then alongside of them are kind of in the same city are these this rival gang called the Stoics who believed in God or God, small g, and they believed in fate and they believed that life was was you know, was not all that pleasurable, was about duties, about duty to a deity that they have to submit. You should have this kind of emotionless obedience. You know, when James Stockdale's fighter jet was shot down in Vietnam in 1965, one of the things he wrote in his journal just as he was being imprisoned in a prison camp is he wrote, I'm leaving the world of technology and I'm entering into the world of the Stoics. And what he meant by that is that the only way I'm going to survive this experience is if I deny pain, I deny emotions and I fix my eyes on duty and I control that which I can control he's taking a stoic approach in the name of survival. So Paul is among the people. He's actively engaging the people. He doesn't expect the people to come to him. He goes to them and his perception of what's taking place is as he's beginning to see more and more into the motivations of the people, that's not only not repelling him, but that's drawing him in even more. In other words, the fallenness of the Athenians didn't disgust Paul. It actually moved Paul to engage them more. And this is where I think it it begins to put forward questions for all of us about about where we are with respect to our community. I mean, really like in our hearts, how how do we feel about the people in our community? How do we feel about some of the ways that people are sinning? Does their fallenness incite sympathy from us? Or, Or is there a sense where the first instinct is to fear or to get angry or to feel like, yeah, we just can't let that happen in our community? Listen, we can't win people that we are adversarial towards. It'll never happen. We cannot win people that we are adversarial towards. You know, one of the reasons why I have so much difficulty watching Fox News, and if you love Fox News, I, I'm not making a judgment on it. I'm saying it because it affects different people this different ways. But for me, I come away with a sense, just me, that folks that don't buy that brand of conservatism can be viewed as liberal morons. Now, for me, that that kind of stirs up my self-righteousness, and my self-righteousness doesn't need to be stirred up. It exists fat and happy apart from any media outlets feeding it. Now, for you, MSNBC might have the exact same effect, so you might need to you might need to avoid that in some way. What I'm saying, though, is the things that affect me that way do not draw me to want to move toward them with the gospel. I can't win somebody that I'm, that I'm creating an adversarial relationship towards. We can't win people that we're, we're ambivalent about, that that we don't care about. I mean, try knocking on your neighbor's door and saying to them, I know we've never met and the most that you've ever gotten from me is a disinterested nod as you're backing out of the driveway, but would you like to come to church? We can't win people that we're ambivalent about. We can't win people that we don't care about. You know, it's interesting with it just yesterday or the day before that Norma McCorvey died. Norma McCorvey was Jane Roe, the woman who was behind Roe v. Wade. And she worked in the world of, uh, of, of, in the abortion world for a number of years until in the mid-90s, she was working in an abortion clinic and a crisis pregnancy center opened in the same building that the uh, abortion clinic was in. And 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 Norma McCorvey was a very bitter woman. And she used to call over to the Crisis Pregnancy Center and say, you know what we're doing over here? I just want you to think about that. Hang up. But there was a family in the Crisis Pregnancy Center that determined that they were going to love Norma McCorvey. And so they began sending snacks over and, and, and going over and greeting her. Sometimes the kids would just come over, hey, Miss Norma, how you doing? And, and they eventually invited her over for dinner and, began to build a relationship with her and began to just love her. And then eventually, when the time seemed right, seemed right after there was a relationship and after a lot of love had been shown, they invited her to church, and Norma McCorvey was converted to Christ. Because someone was able to see beyond Jane Roe, because someone was able to see what Jane Roe represented, and it didn't repel them. It didn't just push them away. There was a sense where that that fallenness was an invitation for gospel engagement. Listen, never forget that that the way we enter the field matters to the Lord of the harvest. The, The way we move towards people, that matters to God. Because when he wants to reach us, let's remember, when he wants to reach those who are hostile towards him, who are at enmity with him, who consider God an enemy, who have violated his will, who want to do nothing more than stand in opposition to God, what does he do? Well, he leaves glory. He takes on the form of a man. He sets aside the divine prerogatives of deity. And not only does he come, but he he lives among us. He loves us. He serves us. He kneels and stoops before us. He ultimately dies for us and rises again, and he transmits the horror of our condition to us through the way he loves us. He doesn't react to our idols. He doesn't react to the things that we love more than him. But he sees beyond that and engages us. And that's what Paul's doing. Paul's not withdrawing from the Athenians because he sees how ugly it really is. An idol to an unknown God, are you serious? But to Paul, that's an invitation to move toward them. And so he engaged these people in Athens so effectively that he was invited to the Areopagus, which leads us to our next point. We move from gospel engagement to stage three gospel facility. Now, don't let that word throw you, because I just mean by that, you know, the ability, the skill of applying the gospel. Gospel facility is how we excavate the culture and connect the the culture to the gospel, connect the culture to scripture. So it goes beyond seeing fallenness, beyond seeing sin, beyond seeing idols, to connecting all of that to the word of God. So Paul goes to the Areopagus, which by the way, when you hear Areopagus, just think of a combination of a, you know, a, a, a college campus and a, a town square and maybe a pub. You know, it's a place that people would gather, people would relate, people would talk, people would chill out. And so Paul stands up in verse 22 and he says, I perceive you are religious and I noticed there was a particular altar here and it is an altar to the unknown God. And then, what Paul does is he begins to kind of walk them through this introduction to Christian theology. Verse 24, he begins talking about how God is the creator. And verse 25, God is self sufficient. Verse 26, God is the ruler of all things. And then he goes on, he quotes a couple of Greeks, and he brings it all home with this call to repentance and this altar call, and actually, let's let's not even go through this too quickly, because if we go through it too quickly, we're going to miss what is a very impressive display of gospel facility by Paul, and, and I think one of the best ways we can break this apart is just look at it in two ways, this, this gospel facility. First, I think we can look at it in the way that Paul connected to their culture. So, Paul has not only perceived their idols, but he's read their authors. He knows a little bit about their music. You know, in verse 28, what's happening there is Paul is referencing a popular hymn to Zeus by a guy named Epimenides. So when he says, in him we live and move and have our being, he's just pulling forward a popular song and he's putting it up there and pulling something out of it that speaks of the God of all truth. And then in the next line, he's citing a Stoic poet when he says, for for we are indeed his offspring. He's just just bringing forward a poet and saying, and you can pull this out as well. See, what I'm trying to say is that for Paul, these expressions of, of pop culture, art, music, literature, these expressions of pop culture told him something about their beliefs. They were important windows to look into, not to worship, but to look in, to into. And so Paul studied it. Paul considered it. I mean, I don't know. Maybe Paul even enjoyed it. But he, he did so understanding something, I believe, about the nature of culture. That, you know, there's a, the culture's kind of like a, a two-sided coin. On one side, culture carries Values. And so, you know, when we read books, when we visit a website, when we watch a movie, you know, there's there's always some culture, there's always some worldview that's radiating out at us. And, and 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 you know, here's the thing: is Christians can be very discerning people, and so Christians discern this and we react to culture, and we look and we see we see people who are mindlessly swallowing culture. And they're swallowing culture in an attempt to reach the culture. And there's something inside of us that says, I don't know, I don't understand everything, but I don't think it's right to reach the world, but to try to reach the world by becoming like the world. That to me doesn't seem like a good approach. And, and, and some Christians are trying to, you know, they're trying to wrestle through this and and realize that just just engaging the world by becoming more like the world is not going to get us down the road. It's not going to set a stage for the gospel, I mean, would Christ sit with liars and hookers and tax collectors? Well, you bet he would. Was it evident he was not one of them? Well, you bet it was. So, so the one side of the coin is that you know, culture carries these values. And as Christians in, in the world, we have to be discerning what those are. But, but there's also a sense where culture reveals certain needs. And so Paul wasn't afraid of studying it and trying to understand what needs did it reveal and what longings did it reveal about the people that were using it. So Paul would see their idols and read their books and listen to their music and hear the needs or the longings that it revealed. And, you know, it's important to see the kind of measured response he brought because Many Christians today would just be tempted to go and organize a boycott of Walmart because they're selling out altars and selling idols. You know, back in the day, they would have been moving this stuff. Or 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 condemning, you know, institutions or or protesting. And, and I'm not saying there isn't a place for all of that. All I'm saying is that we don't change culture by reacting to culture. We don't change culture by fearing culture. I mean, as a parent, all of our our kids are adults now, but as a parent, I think there were many times where I reacted to the altars my kids admired rather than really trying to understand what it said about what they admired, what it said about maybe a need they felt they had or a desire that they were pursuing. You know, what does it mean that a teen worships peers? You know, if we, you know, we can react to that and we can try to, you know, scream and rail at the man or we can try to understand, well, okay, what does that say about the heart of the average teenager or that they love Drake or Bieber or Nicki Minaj or, you know, whoever it might be or that the middle class idolizes recreation or their children or their, st- you know, the more respectable idols within the evangelical church. See, Paul had gospel facility, which meant he was able to see what these idols revealed about their sins, revealed about their longings, and then bridge it from there over to God's word and bring God's word back into play. So he was able to sample their music and read their books and still see traces of the divine written by those who were created in the image of God. And this is a guy, you know, I don't think when you looked at if you hung out with Paul, Paul was not hip. He wasn't a guy that was kind of hip trafficking in pop culture, nor was he a fundamentalist that was always reacting to pop culture. He was, you know, simply trying to be fluent, simply having gospel facility. So Paul's connecting to the culture. But then secondly, and this is really important, Paul's boldness with the truth. See, Paul did not go before the Athenians wanting to be liked, wanting to be accepted, needing to be approved. He did reference the cultural touch points, but he had no apprehension whatsoever to speak boldly the word of God. He looked for the common ground. He identified the common ground. He, he tried to relate and connect with, it, with them. But when the moment came, when it became necessary to speak the word of God, Paul spoke eternal truth. Look at verse 30. This is where Paul turns the corner and begins, and, and begins bringing it. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul says, and here's the point that I'm trying to get to in all this. We're all ignorant. You're ignorant. You need to repent. The world's going to be judged. You see, with Paul, we're not dealing with somebody that is infatuated with the culture intoxicated by the culture that is fascinated by the culture and so that in the way that he relates to it there's this downsizing of Jesus and this bigness of the culture he he does it to bring the word of god he does it so that so that the the word of God would be put into play, and the power of God would be made available to these folks. And he's, so he's not pandering to them. You know, did you ever find yourself wanting to make Jesus more palatable to the people that you're trying to reach? You know, to to offer a king maybe without the cross, because the cross is part of the hard word of of Christianity, to offer a, a relationship with Jesus without this hard word of repentance. Dude, Paul doesn't go there, and, and, and he doesn't let us go there. And I, I, I'm sympathetic to this because I, I think I was, you know, I responded to the gospel in the late 70s. I, I should say, I responded to Christ in the late 70s to a message that was basically, come to Jesus and he'll give you meaning. Come to Jesus and he'll improve your life. And it was true, but it was incomplete. It was true, but it was, it was a sanitized version of the gospel. And I began realizing, trying to share with other people, you know, that I'm never really going to be able to be fluent in the gospel if I'm not willing to speak the hard words as well as the simple words. You know, when you're trying to learn a language, it's easy to learn the simple words. It's, it's harder to learn the hard words. Paul's using both the simple and the hard words of Christianity, the hard words of theology, to bring it to the people of, of Athens. So Paul was fluent. He had this facility because he included hard truth. He used words like repentance. He used words like judgment. We must as well. So stage three was gospel facility. And lastly is stage four, which is gospel response. Paul's gospel perception led to gospel engagement. The gospel engagement displayed his gospel facility, which then led to this incredible gospel response. Look at this in verse 32. And I say incredible visally, and I want to explain what I mean by that. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, and among also were Dionysius and and a woman named Damaris. So so the bold preaching of the unedited gospel had this polarizing effect on people. It repelled some and attracted others. I mean, it did what the gospel always does. Repelled some, attracted others. Repelled many, attracted a few. And it describes the response. It says, some mocked. You know, it's, it's good to remember that. It's good to remember that when we share the, the hard word, the hard part of the gospel, that it does provoke people. It's wise to keep that in mind, that, we're, you know, that, that when you're handling the power of God, it is plutonium within the culture. So some mocked. Others, it kind of presents as if they're curious. It says in verse 32, we will hear you again about this. You know, there's really nothing noble in that response. Paul just hit a nerve with them. <laughs> you know, this is just courteous dismissal. Yeah, we'll, we'll check you out later. But then it goes on to say, Luke goes on to say, and still others believed and joined him, Dionysius and Damaris. The God of the unknown became known in the person of Jesus Christ. And and what I love about this section of Scripture, what I love about this this chapter, is how it, it ends with a specific mention of these two individuals, this man and this woman, who came to Christ. When I think about it from through the lens of the whole chapter, I think my my goodness, there was a lot of work that went in in Athens. There was a lot of activity, a lot of energy, probably a lot of money that was spent. And many people heard, but only a few responded. (coughs) It was a lot of work. There was studying the culture. There was engaging the people. There was preaching in the Areopagus. There was a lot of things that Paul was doing, but not apparently a lot of fruit. Which says to me at the end that God may take many efforts that we do to simply touch a few. That God may take many of the things that we do in his name and for the gospel to touch even one or two. And, and, and this should give us a kind of hope. It's not supposed to discourage us, but just the sense that God invites us into his activity. He's gone before us. And that we may need to try a number of things just to see a couple of people. One, we may need to work hard just to save a few. And, you know, maybe you feel the same way that I do this morning. You know, there's this sense where when it comes to something that is as vulnerable as evangelism, we can feel very easily foiled or we can feel that if we engage somebody for a while and they just don't respond, that God somehow isn't keeping up his end of the arrangement. Like we have this implied covenant with God. We have this arrangement where it's a a kind of transaction where we put in the hard work and God has to deliver at some point. And that's how God kind of delivers on his his end of the bargain. But that's not the arrangement of the way the gospel goes forward. You know, just the fact that we've been praying and trying and learning and, 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 and inviting and doing all the things that, that we're supposed to be doing doesn't necessarily obligate God to deliver the kind of fruit that we think he needs to deliver in the timetable that we expect it to come. It's almost more like Acts 17 is, is reminding us that we must follow Paul's example. You know, Paul said it in, in another place this way. He said, I planted." Paulus watered, God gave the growth. Which is another way to say, you know, the guy who plants and waters don't always see the fruit. You know, our job is really just to keep, keep sowing. The mission that we're called to right here in this community is to sow much and trust God. So much and trust God with the fruit, which probably means for a lot of us this morning that we have to, you know, we have to try a little more. Do you feel discouraged this morning with the absence of fruit in maybe the little bit you're doing, or maybe it's the the, the lot of things that you're doing? Well, you know, try a little bit more. So, so much and trust God. So much and trust God. Do do you have people in your life who appear far from God, but they appear utterly content to be there? Well, I think the word from Scripture is try a little bit more. You know, keep, keep trying. There was nobody more content, by the way, or self-satisfied in his religious superiority than the very man we're studying this morning here in Acts 17. Paul was the same. You were, might have been the same. Try a little bit more. Do you feel like you've run out of ideas for that woman at work or, or your loved one, family member, you're probably not fluent yet. You know, maybe maybe you need to just try a little bit more. Yeah, most of us are here this morning because someone was fluent enough in our life, and they tried, and they didn't give up, and we shouldn't give up either. We need to try a little bit more. And so let's let's pray together that God would help us to so much and trust Him, and keep keep us from giving up. That we'll try a little bit more, so that. Verse 34 might also be true of our efforts where Luke says, some men joined him and believed. May that happen in our life as well. Let's pray.